Hello, everyone. We are doing a short series on the book of Jonah with tie-ins with other biblical passages in preparation for our Sunday evening series this upcoming fall on the book of Daniel. And we're using the book of Jonah really as a test case for learning how to read the Bible typologically or typologically, which I, I personally think is the way God has structured history itself, not just the Bible. And we will get more into typology and what it is as we go along in this, this short series. Well, last week we discussed issues facing modern readers as we approach the biblical text, in particular our assumptions about what history is, what counts as historical evidence, how we in turn uh, read our modern assumptions into the text, and so on. And we could have just as easily added discussions about how the addition of chapters and verses, which are not original to the Old or New Testaments, can sometimes throw off our reading or understanding because a chapter break or a verse break might not line up with the author's intention. I mean, after all, the addition of chapters and verses are themselves interpretations of the text. Or how translators sometimes, understandably, import English language sensibilities into their translations. So, for example, where it's bad form for an author to repeat words and phrases over and over again, uh, we English speakers like similes and variety, biblical authors intentionally repeat words and phrases and link thoughts and ideas across biblical books purposely through that repetition. So, for example, we are meant to read David's seeing of Bathsheba by way of Eve's seeing of the fruit, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3. Both events involve evaluation, moral decision, and the taking of forbidden fruit. What's more, and we will see this in later episodes, sometimes Hebrew authors intentionally use clunky or strange and unexpected language in order to intentionally draw the reader's attention to it. So, for example, in the creation of Adam, God shaped or formed Adam from the dirt, but with the creation of Eve, God built Eve from the side of Adam. The only other places where that verb is typically used is in architectural context, in the building of something, a building or a device or something like that. So why the different verb, and why such a strange one at that? Well, again... We will come to that sort of thing in later episodes. In fact, we will come to that specific issue in later episodes. My point is that English translators, as good as they are, and I think they are very good, and our English translations are very trustworthy, well, sometimes they, they smooth out rough edges or make a Hebrew thought less repetitive in order for it to read better in English, and that can unintentionally throw us off too. But enough on issues facing modern readers. This week we start working with the book of Jonah itself, and I'm interested in answering the question, why did Jonah run from God? So what do we actually know about Jonah himself? Well, the only place other than the book of Jonah where Jonah is mentioned is in 2 Kings chapter 14, beginning with verse 23. This is what it says. It says, In the fifteenth year... Of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, 
Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And by the way, that's a phrase that's repeated with every king in the northern kingdom. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that is Jeroboam the first, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Well, it seems fairly clear that Jonah was a faithful or true prophet serving in Israel, that is the northern kingdom, under wicked Jeroboam II. And we get the idea that Jonah was faithful not only because of the content of his prayer in Jonah chapter 2 and his interactions with God in later chapters of the book, but because what God spoke through Jonah to wicked King Jeroboam II came true, which as Deuteronomy 13 and 18 make clear, is one of the marks of a true prophet. As an aside, uh, the vast majority of prophecy in the Bible has to do with the present reality or the very near present reality of the people the prophet was ministering to. So, for example, Jonah's prophecy to Nineveh would be proven true or false within 40 days' time. And that's how the vast majority of future-telling prophecy worked, as in it would be confirmed or denied in a very short amount of time. Well, Jonah ministered roughly 130 years or so after the splitting of the kingdom into northern Israel and southern Judah, so roughly 130 years after the death of Solomon. And while the southern kingdom of Judah centered on Jerusalem and the kingly line of David was sometimes faithful and sometimes not, and eventually was just not, the northern kingdom of Israel was a succession of one wicked king after another. And of course, both northern and southern kingdoms would ultimately be judged by God for their unfaithfulness and would, in turn, be exiled from the land. The northern kingdom being conquered by the Syrians, whose capital was Nineveh, and the southern kingdom by the Babylonians, which is where Daniel ministered in Babylon. Even so, the situation in Israel was largely prosperous. That's what the 2 Kings 14 passage that I read before indicates. And that material blessing was clearly a gift from God, even as Israel was on the whole unfaithful and did not acknowledge God for those blessings. In fact, you can go through most of the prophets and see that sort of thing being mentioned. Jonah was not the only prophet, of course, who ministered in that time period, and those other prophets had similar message, messages that warned of impending judgment on Israel too. Of course, Elijah and Elisha had ministered to northern Israel previous to Jonah as well. So Jonah was roughly 781. You have prophets like Amos, who was 765 to 754, who warned that punishment was coming, as does Hosea, 
who was basically 758 to 725, as does Isaiah in certain parts of his book, though he hits both Judah and uh, the northern kingdom. Nahum and Habakkuk are statements of judgment on Assyria after Nineveh had repented, as we see them do in the book of Jonah, but then became apostate, uh, turning away from God. So in summary, Jonah was a largely faithful prophet who spoke the true word of God to Jeroboam II, who was himself an unfaithful and wicked king, and he ministered to the northern kingdom of Israel that was in full rebellion against God, even as Israel enjoyed material prosperity from him and had been repeatedly warned by God, I mean generation after generation, through other prophets to turn back to him, that it was not too late. Well, that takes us then to the question we want to answer. One of the most important, if not the key question of the book of Jonah. If Israel was so bad, why was Jonah sent to Nineveh? And why did he reject God's command to go and preach to them? Well, Nineveh at this time was the capital city of what was quickly becoming the Assyrian Empire. And if you know anything about the Assyrians, then what you probably know is how brutally violent they were. They, they were no joke violent. Now, that doesn't make them unusual, as every successive empire to follow them was brutal, brutally violent too. In fact, the ancient world, in comparison to what we take to be just normal everyday life in America, was unbelievably violent. After all, it was the Romans who gave the world crucifixion, though it seems pretty clear that they were building upon previous innovations and torture techniques. And the Roman economy itself was built on slavery, much of it being sexual slavery. That said, if you read in Genesis 10, beginning around verse 8, the Bible's view of Nineveh is that it was founded by Nimrod, who also founded Babylon. And in that passage, Nineveh is described as basically a four-city complex, kind of like how Atlanta just seems to creep on and on, or like Dallas-Fort Worth is just melded into one continuous city, and it's called Nineveh the Great. So when God says to Jonah in chapter 1, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, he's, he's not paying it a compliment, as if it's a commentary on Nineveh's size or accomplishments, as in, look at that great city. No, he's making a direct link to Genesis 10. And cities like Nineveh and Babylon from Genesis 10 onward are emblematic, as well as, I guess you could say, thematic in the Bible, of cities set in rebellion against God as in their sin is great. It's why Sodom, Babylon, and Egypt show up over and over again as symbols of humans or humanity united in rebellion and hatred of God. Now, there is a lot more that could be said about guys like Nimrod or these cities, and when we come to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, many weeks from now, we will go into Nimrod and these sorts of things in, in more detail. But for now, it's enough to say this was a huge, wicked city that any faithful Jew would want to steer clear of. So you can understand why modern interpreters often apply motives to Jonah that, that see him as a nationalistic Jewish prophet who hated foreigners or did not want to see God show kindness to such a horrific people. And, you know, I'd say that's probably fair as far as it goes. 
I mean, I I seriously doubt any Jew, whether faithful or unfaithful, looked fondly or warmly on the Assyrian Empire. In fact, I doubt anyone other than the Assyrians thought warm thoughts about the Assyrian Empire. But I don't think that really gets at why Jonah fled from God's presence. I think Jonah, as a faithful and true prophet, knew his Torah, and in turn he knew what things like the book of Deuteronomy warned and what it said. So the book of Deuteronomy, or as it's known, second law, was given to the second generation of Israelites whose parents refused to believe God that he would take the promised land for them despite what they had seen God do in Egypt, and in turn they died in the wilderness. Deuteronomy is written to their children, and it's a repetition of much of what had come before in the book of Exodus with some added extras that are very important for what life in the land would be like, and they were on the verge of taking the land. So consider, for example, Deuteronomy 4, verses 23 through 31, which I think has a direct bearing on books like Joshua and Daniel. This is God speaking. He says, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, that is, the marriage you entered in with God. And you make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him, if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Now, there is a lot there that is worth talking about, but what I want to focus in is this this warning from God to his bride that when they have been in the land a long time, if she turns away from him and makes a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you, that is the second commandment, God will exile his people from the land. Now, the man who became king of northern Israel hundreds of years after Deuteronomy, Jeroboam I, knew that it was only a matter of time before his people would start back to making pilgrimages to the temple in Jerusalem to worship the true God according to God's appointed place and time as it was written and commanded in the law. And in turn, their hearts would be turned back to David's lineage in the south. At that time, that was Rehoboam in Judah. Remember, the kingdom is freshly split. 
And they would, in turn, then rebel against Jeroboam I and kill him. And you know what? Rightly so. He was a false king. God's promise of life went through David and his descendants. And Jeroboam, this new king of northern Israel, he knew it. So he set up rival worship centers throughout the north, complete with rival feasts. And in turn, he made two golden calves, just like what happened at the foot of Mount Sinai with Aaron, and set them up at Shechem, the place where Abraham, after receiving the promise that God would bless the world through him, had set up a center of worship for God in Genesis 12. So Jeroboam was no dummy. He knew the symbolic value of Shechem. And Jeroboam said, basically, you don't need to go to Jerusalem anymore. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And there are these two golden calves. So it's the apostasy of Mount Sinai all over again. And it's the breaking of the second commandment, just like Deuteronomy 4 warned against. That's making the God of Israel into an image that resonates with how we want him to be, not how he actually is. The same pattern of sin is repeated over and over again with each successive king. They don't break from it. You just go read through it, and you'll see the language repeated over and over again from Jeroboam I, again, the first king of northern Israel, all the way to Jeroboam II. That's 130 years later during Jonah's ministry, who purposely, he purposely took on the, the, the name of Jeroboam as his own name. That is, he wanted to be like Jeroboam I. So the warning before Israel ever entered the promised land was that if, if Israel refused to turn away from false worship, God would eventually exile his people from his presence in the land. In the case of the northern kingdom where Jonah ministered, God was patient over the course of a couple hundred years of their persistent rejection of him. But there are more warnings. Actually, there's a lot more warnings in Deuteronomy, but I want to point out Deuteronomy 32, verses 15 through 21, as being particularly relevant to the book of Jonah. It says, But Yeshurun, that is the upright one, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. And this is really recounting the Baal worship at Peor in Numbers 25, which was a horrible incident in the life of God's people. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So 
while this is recalling what happened in Numbers 25, it is also a warning for the future that if the people of God are hell-bent on pursuing other gods, the true God will give them over to what they want and in turn will exile them from the land. But that's not all. As they have made their husband jealous by way of gods and idols that are no gods at all, as Hosea makes vividly clear in his book, God will no longer call his people my people, but instead will take a people who are not my people and make them my people. And through that people, even a very foolish nation like, say, Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, or what we see happen with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon in the book of Daniel, God will provoke his people to anger and jealousy. Well, we are now in a position to start answering that question, why did Jonah run? I think Jonah knew Deuteronomy and God's warnings to his people about unfaithfulness and and the breaking of the second commandment. And it wasn't just once or twice. It was generation after generation. And he knew just how bad things were in the northern kingdom and how long it had been going on. He knew that God would make good on his word and that he would not only exile Israel, but that he would make a people who are not my people into my people in order to anger Israel and provoke her to jealousy. And so when God called Jonah to preach to Nineveh, he knew that, and this is his exact wording, you, O God, are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's a true statement. And Jonah said it in anger because the people of Nineveh beginning with the king and going all the way down, had responded to the word of the Lord and had turned to him. So a foolish people, to put it mildly, who were not my people, had become my people. God was slow to anger with Israel, but he kept his word all the same in both the promise of exile, which would happen within 50 years' time of Jonah, and the promise of making a people who were not my people, into my people, which happens when the king of Nineveh repents in all of Nineveh with him, and Jonah is angered by this. Which is something, by the way, that none of the kings of Israel this far had done. None of them had responded to the word of God to them. None of them had repented. So as you could probably guess, there is much more we could say. And so we will talk next time much more about chapter 1.